Episode 25. I'm your host, Patty Johnson. This is the podcast where we talk about how to get more shows, grants, and residencies. And this week, I am here with the artist William Pohida, and we are talking about how has the art world changed. William, welcome to the show. Hey, Patty. Thanks for having me. Uh, great to have you here. Now, we are talking about how the art world has changed basically since 2017. And can you tell everybody a little bit about why we chose that date? Well, in 2017, I did a show at the Aldrich Museum called After the Contemporary that kind of took um, a satirical look at uh, the, the period of contemporary art, which was uh, roughly defined as lasting from 2000 to 2025. And most of my predictions and um, uh, the the kind of content of the show is, you know, uh, rooted in this kind of look of a, at a 25-year period of contemporary art. But I made the show in 2017. And I made certainly some predictions about where the art world was going and, uh, you know, how we got here. And so, I, I'm also going to be revisiting this project uh, over the next year and a half to produce a, another kind of publication that um, revisits some of the ideas in the show and what has actually happened since 2017. And, and again, to kind of think about uh, how the art world is changing and where it may be headed. And were any of those predictions that you had then, have any of them come to fruition or were they true? Well, I, it was definitely a satirical show. And so some of the predictions were uh, related to this idea of consolidation at the very top of the art world. So in the show, you have Gagosian and Swerner merging to create like a mega, mega gallery. And while that has not come to pass, <laughs> we recently saw that uh, Freeze acquired the Armory Show and um, what used to be Expo Chicago. Uh, and so, you know, the consolidation really still is happening, you know, at the top layer of the art world. You I, know, the I would add to that, though, that mm -hmm. we've also seen it's only rumors and they've been dispelled and or denied in certain uh, publications and things like that, but the idea that Gagosian might partner with a high-end fashion house, for example, and then become a mega brand that way. Oh, absolutely. And the show was rooted in this idea, too, of a kind of brand, you know, subsuming everything else. So, you know, we had a, a fake art fair booth by this gallery called uh, Grebsky, that you only bought Grebskis. It wasn't really about buying an individual artist's work. You just wanted to get part of, you know, the, the brand's uh, luxury cachet. And, you know, Periton Gallery recently sort of announced that they were selling like a 60% controlling interest to a kind of corporate entity, mm -hmm. you know. And, uh, you know, the show was also really looking at other sort of political and social events. So I certainly did not see the pandemic coming. But, you know, the, the Russia invading Ukraine is sort of on the map. Another thing that I also missed, I mean, there was certainly some speculation about Elon Musk and Tesla and SpaceX, but I did not see him buying Twitter and destroying, you know, the, the social media platform to the point where he's now just changed the name to X and 
<laughs> which is like the most crazy thing. Like when I saw that yesterday at first, I was like, what are people tweeting about? What? Like, what is this X business? You know? And then of course it doesn't take that long to figure out what's going on. But the idea that you would rebrand something to from something that was easily pronounceable and to this is just crazy to me. I mean, I think there was, uh, he got kicked out of, he was working with PayPal mm-hmm. at one point and he wanted to change the name of PayPal to like PayPal X or something like that. And everybody was like, that's a terrible idea. People say, can I PayPal you this, which is like the pinnacle for brand awareness. And <laughs> he wanted to destroy that with X. Like you would never say, can I X you this? And the whole thing just connotes like X-rated videos. And like, there, there's so many problems with X. Yeah, I, it, it's actually really interesting because with Elon Musk, you know, here we had Twitter, which I know it was always a company started by some people, but it was really built and gained a lot of its value through the activity of millions of users around the world, who I think, you know, like me for a period of time became very invested um, in Twitter. And it felt like a public town square, or it was this, you know, it had this aspect where a lot of people could communicate very quickly. And there was something wonderfully, you know, um, democratic in yeah. terms of at least how it felt. And then along comes one very wealthy man who buys the company, takes it private, and essentially destroys it to the point where that X is like he's canceled Twitter. You know, it's it's just repellent. And, you know, in the art world where, you know, one of the reasons why we're talking today is, you know, about this profile, how Larry Gagosian reshaped the art world. Yes. And, you know, on the other end of it here, we have this mega brand, um, this huge gallery that has really been driven by one individual. And, you know, I think we can get into it, but, um, you know, these are sort of related, you know, issues in the sense that we're, we're dealing with like large populations of people that are doing something and that we're up against, you know, very, very wealthy and very, very powerful, like singular individuals that have visions. And, you know, actually at this point, I would say I would, I much prefer Gagosian's <laughs> vision than like Elon Musk's. He's just, uh, it's something else to see what he's doing to our, you know, kind of formerly beloved social media platform. Yeah, well, I mean, I think there are levels of badness, right? Uh, And Mm -hmm. Gagosian is not at the very top of that. But within our sphere, I think there is a lot of um, distrust of Larry Gagosian and, you know, of the things that were sort of bringing us to this topic today. One was that uh, article that ran in the New Yorker on Larry Gagosian, how to you know, Gagosian changed the art world. And the other was like upstate New York and how there was, it felt almost like there's this bifurcation of the art world where you have a very, very wealthy class, very concerned with prices and sales of things that uh, the average human cannot comprehend. And then the uh, a very kind of artist centered making community that uh it feels in some ways outside of those uh that sale environment or 
Like it doesn't have the same kind of access to it. And so you have these two separate, essentially separate economies going on at the same time inside the same industry. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think it's it's interesting to think about it in kind of spatial terms, a little bit elastically or fluidly, because, you know, the Upstate Art Weekend, you have, you know, it represents hundreds, I don't know how many artists and dealers and gallerists have moved uh, upstate, but it's a kind of wide geographic area. And that represents a lot of movement that happened, started well before the pandemic, but sort of was intensified uh, during yes. the pandemic. And it also reflects a kind of broader shift of artists moving to places like Los Angeles. Um, there's this kind of overall dispersion. And then if you come back to New York, you know, you can still see Gagosian, Hauser and Worth and Pace and the kind of mega galleries doing their thing in Chelsea. But then you've also got, you know, Tribeca increasingly packed with the kind of mid-level galleries. And of course, the Lower East Side and some outlying areas are still where this kind of, you know, the emerging sector of the art world, which, you know, it's, we're, we're seeing a kind of like reconfiguration of the art world, you know, and certainly, yeah. as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, even the art fairs are kind of changing their structure a little bit. Do you feel like within, this is a sort of New York City centered question, but within the city itself, that the art world feels a little bit more dispersed, even within the city? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it does feel more dispersed. It's just, it's a really sort of simple change. But, you know, 10 years ago, you could pick a neighborhood, go and go to like 20 or 30 openings, see a lot of friends, a lot of peers, people in the industry. And it was like Sunday nights were the Lower East Side, Thursday nights were Chelsea. Yes. And you could, you know, get a lot in. And now it seems it's much more fractured. And yeah. at any given night, there's openings and spread out all over the city. So it does kind of diminish one of the sort of great things that New York had, which was this concentration of openings that created a kind of social uh, environment to kind of see artwork in. And if anything that we, we we've already sort of talked a little bit little bit about in the Larry Kagoshian profile is just how important his social events are to the kind of cultivation of his business and the value for artwork. And so I do think that's something that has it really has shifted uh, in the kind of like social landscape of the New York art community. It is spread out, even though the galleries are still geographically kind of located together. Yeah, I mean, I think this was outside the podcast, but I, I remember yesterday you saying that you had some friends that were kind of near PS1, but hadn't been able to go to see what was in PS1, even though they were like right beside. And I have felt too that there are certain shows that I should see that I just had not been able to get to see. And it's not because I don't see art, you know, I see most weeks I see art at least once a week you know, and that has felt like it's not enough to be able to see what's up. And I don't know if that's because there's more of it. There might be, um, but it does also feel like it's it's dispersed. You can't do quite as much in a short a period of time. And that makes something like Upstate Art Weekend also feel a little bit more viable because you're not you're going to see one show and then you're going to drive 45 minutes to the next show. 
Yeah, I would love to hear more about it too. I mean, I've got a, a bit of an impression uh, from our previous conversations around this, but you know, um, I you know, for me personally, like I still need to take care of downstate art life. You know, it's not just a weekend. You know, there's still a lot of art that you know I need to get out and see here. And yeah, it just has been a little bit more challenging when there's not the same kind of um, concentration of openings where you can just kind of like pack in a lot of uh, shows, you know, in a few hours. And then if something really jumps out at you, you know, you make a trip back to really see it, you know, when it's not crowded with people. So I'd love to hear more of your take on Upstate Art Weekend because uh, Kristen and I stayed, you know, here this past weekend. Right. So there were well over 100 venues. I went up with the idea that I would not be able to reach, <laughs> visit very many of those at all, just a handful. I wanted to make sure that I didn't really plan it this way, but normally when I go to see shows, I like to be able to see network members in those shows. Uh, but pretty much any show that I went to, there was at least a few network members in. So that was sort of, that took care of things without me even having to plan. But really the the um, experience is such that you go up there. Uh, if you don't have friends to stay with, you have to book an Airbnb. So it is kind of expensive, uh, I think, for the average person. It's a nice way to see art. So when I went up, uh, you know, I spent probably three or four hours at Nada Foreland, just that itself, which is in this giant industrial building that has been converted partially into studios. And it feels like an art show. And it felt like a sculpture show. Like it didn't even feel like an art fair. There were a couple gallery like dealers there, but most of the like what I got from them was like, eh, I didn't even know if I should be here because Nada said it didn't really matter. <laughs> and one of them was very excited about being able to get a sandwich without having to be really stressed out about leaving uh, potential sales on the table. And that's because, you know, you go into Nada Foreland and you do not think to yourself, oh, this is a heavy sales environment. A lot of times the dealers aren't there. And if they are, they're like, they take a very laid back approach. So you know, it's a quite a different environment from a place like Freeze, where the the gallerists are always front and center. Yeah, yeah. And I think the way you've described it does point to the kind of like, I guess the challenges of, I guess, is it going to be commercially viable to continue to produce things like not a foreland if there isn't, you know, a collector base? And then just part of me, you know, as an artist, you know, I, I hope that, you know, the artists and the dealers and the galleries that are set up in Upstate Art Weekend are able to sell some work or recover some of the, you know, money or investments they made in putting all of this work on. Because it sounds really idyllic on some level, you know, getting to travel to different spaces and see see work you know then jump in the car and sort of travel to another spot in this very sort of pastoral landscape but you know i i do wonder about the realities of it because we're we're sort of talking about this split in two worlds where the collectors right now tend to be in the hamptons in aspen out west they're also heading up to southern maine i i know i mentioned this to you uh before but i got an email from nada you know, talking about member programming in Southern Maine this coming weekend. 
So just after Upstate Art Weekend, you know, the not a focus is on collectors who are now vacationing or spending their summers in southern Maine. Yeah, so in terms of the sustainability of something like this, I like it it certainly seems good for community building, right? Like that definitely it there's a lot of energy around it. It feels a little bit like I think somebody said this to me last year that it felt like the energy for the spring break fair had just been transferred to upstate art weekend and that there was less around that kind of self-organizing and more around this. Uh, and I don't, they're just such different beasts. I don't know if that comparison really holds water, but I will say that, you know, Jacqueline Cedar, uh, who is an artist who also is like, she runs a gallery called Good Naked. She was up there. It's maybe, um, maybe her third plus time being there. So I don't think that she would come back there year after year if she wasn't able to sell something. I don't know. I haven't actually, I didn't actually ask her. I talked to Amy Toludo who runs Pep Talks for Artists and it is an artist herself. And she organized a show um, called Strange Untried, um, which was basically in somebody's studio. And the studio, of course, is so beautiful. It looks like a gallery. So I think for for me, I would like go to a show, see it, and then travel however long to the next place. And it sort of felt like I explained this earlier. It sort of felt like I a palate cleanser of some sort, right? So you, by the time you see art again, it's not like one of these overwhelming experiences where you can't actually see the art. But uh, that was a digression from the point of is this sustainable, which is. <laughs> Maybe like Amy had a bunch of stuff uh, out front, which was low price points. Then she had uh, middle price points in inside the the show, the way that she had organized it. So these were like prints, things that were available for a couple hundred to a thousand bucks. And then she had stuff that was more expensive. I would say maybe up to 10K or whatever. And she told me that she sold one sculpture for a good chunk of change and you know some uh, some of the other small things and her goal was really to just break even so she had talked about like just being so nervous putting the show together because it really is just like bleeding cash when you launch an exhibition like galleries in general are just like cash pits <laughs> and she said that she was like going around Home Depot saying, please give me your finest particle board <laughs> 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 yeah. for her tables and stuff like that. She's very funny. And the show honestly was great. Like there was uh, Jesse Bransford, Natalie Beal, Amy, Addie Rus Russell, and, uh, you know, some other people. I will say that in a lot of cases, you saw the same names come up. So you mm. see, you know, I think Addie Russell, I see, I saw at least twice, Jesse Bram, uh, uh, Bransford, same thing. So like uh, these networks, although they are dispersed, they feel like they're, um, they're a lot of, like a lot of the artists know each other. Yeah, I, I, I've seen that in terms of the, you know, shows that are produced, um, artists, you know, who, who maybe, 
hosting a space, but also showing their work in another yeah. space. But I, I do think the takeaway is that when you're presenting work to, you know, an upstate audience, which may, you know, include some collectors, um, it is wonderful to have works at lower price points, whether it's at the level of kind of merch, <laughs> where you can maybe sell a lot of little things for a little bit of money um, to just lower priced editions and multiples so that it can be accessible to folks who, you know, may be interested in art, but generally might not have the same budget as collectors for fine art price points. Um, you know, I think one of the, the questions I have about Upstate Art Weekend, and I think this is maybe a hope for, is that, that as people become more familiar with the spaces upstate, that there becomes more of a regular, you know, kind of um, circuit or time that people, if they're traveling upstate, they think, oh, there are these galleries in this area, I should go see them, you know, because for the longest time, when people said they were going to go upstate to see art, it was like, are you going to Dia Beacon or like, going all yeah, the way totally. up to Mass Mocha and then maybe the Mangiano collection. But those sort of big hubs, you know, are what people travel upstate to see. But if there is a concentration, you know, that starts to grow um, in Hudson or other places, then they'll become destinations because Upstate Art Weekend is literally like two or three days of art. And you still got, you know, 362 other days, right, in the year that you have to kind of bring in audiences, maybe do programming. If you're if you're running, you know, uh, a, a longer term program, if it's just a weekend pop up, then, you know, yes, I, I really hope you can break even. Yeah, well, I would say that that desire, I think, is certainly there amongst the artists that I spoke to that they, you know, one of the things that was a constant was like, it's so great being up here, but it can be isolating. And that's like, even now, post pandemic, where there's way more artists up there than there was, say, eight years ago, where you could really feel pretty lonely. But, you know, I think the people up there also have gotten very used to like, okay, these are the places that I have to hit and all the rest. Whereas I uh, am not at that stage quite yet. Uh, Amy, the map that she produced actually was really helpful because it kind of divided things between one side of the Hudson River and the mm -hmm. other side. So in theory, we were going to hit things on one side on one day and then on the other and the next. It didn't turn out that way because we just didn't have enough time. But I mean, I think one of the, even though I had planned to maybe only hit four or five places, I was still disappointed when that was the amount that I could do. <laughs> so one thing that I found really kind of incredible was the second day I went to the Stoneleaf Retreat. So I did Strange Untried, which was that small group show that was organized by Amy Toledo. Then just down the road, there was Stone Leaf Retreat, which is Helen Toomer, who's like run a bazillion different kinds of art fairs and all the rest. And she's the going to be running uh, a new a new fair yes. timed with, I think, Armory. Yeah, I think so. Is it photo? a photo fair? Yeah. yeah, I don't know the title of it, so I don't want to say it yet. But yeah, yeah. She's interesting because I do think, you know, um, Hel Helen is one of these figures that kind of has been in both worlds of sort of the upper tiers of the art exactly. world and, you know, now running Stoneleaf in upstate yeah. New York. Yeah, so Stoneleaf is a residency and you can tell she has this like event background because you get there, the sign's real big and like she actually had two people hired to help uh, people park their cars <laughs> in the right place and all the rest. And 
you know, you get out of the car. She has this like beautiful, like many, many acres where she's got uh, like different residencies occupying different places and like different spots. And she's got uh, like a full spread of food and even remembered to give people fans. So <laughs> there were these fancy wooden fans that people were carting around. And the place is just beautiful. It felt very much like a scene. So the Stoneleaf residency really focuses on women artists. So I wanted to go up there and uh, see uh, Macon Reed, but like Liz Collins, Macon had a, like a mural up there. Liz Collins had a, uh, like a gazebo that she had kind of designed. And this woman, uh, Lisiana Cruz had these like huge uh, freedom budget banners. Um, so like there'd be this massive, massive, just text-based artwork that might say something like freedom is childcare for all. And within the context of Trump com- uh, country, like I couldn't be more happy to see a sign like that. Yeah, I, it is, it is really, um, I, the Hudson you know, is a kind of narrow band of blue that can kind of run up yeah. through upstate New York. But yeah, there's there's Trumpers, you know, certainly sprinkled throughout all of the towns and communities oh, in the area. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No there definitely there. are. Yeah. So I was there and, you know, there are like tons and tons of people there. Uh, and then I went to Interlude Residency. Interlude uh, was a little bit more north of where I was, which I can't tell you because I can't read a map. So <laughs> just more north than, than Kingston. And Interlude was, it's a family-focused residency. So I get there and like they have this massive house for the residents. And there's like two families at a time. They have a communal kitchen. They have a separate studio space. One person, Eric Benson, had actually arranged his uh, desk, his working desk, right in front of the window because the window looked out on a field where there were cows. So we could watch the cows go out for the day and then watch them come home as he was working. (laughs) And this was like very quiet. You know, the kids had their own separate studio if they wanted that. There was like a reading, like a kind of musical reading for kids and a trampoline and... uh, you know, there, I think there was a, a bunch of, there were also a current, like the current resident, Karen uh, Dana Cohen. She also is a network member, so I was able to see her work in person. It was just an incredibly nice time. It's a beautiful space, and uh, it's kind of the conditions that I think that anybody would want for making their art. Yeah, it's so funny. I mean, the the just hearing about the differences between the two residencies, like Interlude is designed to support artists with families. It sounds like it's a bit more of like a combination of a middle class uh, and working class environment where you're there to get work done. And I'm sure the artists were very, the residents were happy to see people come into the studios. 
But, you know, that's a different take than like Helen Toomer's, which sounds much more like, you know, we're getting closer to the Larry Gagosian kind of like social scene where fans are provided, there's valet parking, you know, there's this kind of aspirational, I mean, I'm not going to say Stoneleaf Retreat is anywhere, um, not... (laughs) It's not in Larry Gagosian's universe, right? Like in the profile, they talk about him. He's getting ready to host 140 people of like a perfectly manicured guest list, right? But, you know, it it is, it's interesting because we've been, we're talking about the same, we're talking about the like artists working in the art world and that we have to deal with, and we're sort of presented with these different narratives, whether it's like artists in the Hamptons and that, world, artists in upstate New York. And we can even see the kind of differences, you know, between residencies or, you know, approaches. And and then, you know, there's, you know, kind of like Larry's world, where it almost feels like a separate sphere of like reality. We still uh, go see shows at and we know the artists who show there, but it is like, it almost feels like another world where when you describe interlude, I'm like, that sounds like a really nice place that, you know, to like make work if you have a family, but it also seems so far away from like this, this other universe uh, that Larry. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think. For me, it was actually, I, I don't know if I could have made the distinction, like I, I would make a vibe distinction if I can use that word um, <laughs> and survive, but like uh, between Helen and at the Stoneleaf residency and interlude. But to me, because the real estate itself just seems so enormously expensive, like both of them seemed... Like I just looked at it and I was like, God, this is so much, this represents so much money to me. Like, you know, because both of those properties are worth like many millions of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I mean, I, I joke with my friend, the artist, John Powers, that I've wanted to start something called the Institute of Bourgeois Studies on his dock in upstate New York. <laughs> Where we talk precisely, you know, for like, you know, it could be for artists, like, you know, how to talk about wines, you know, particularly from upstate New York, or how to curate a a dinner party that includes some artists and enough wealthy people that they might buy art. But um, yeah, I mean, there's so many class and etiquette distinctions that I think it's really interesting. But yeah, I mean, (laughs) if you own a house in upstate New York and can host guests, there's some money there, right? Yeah, well, and and that's the thing. And I think, Bringing it back to your connection to the Gagosian article, which I think really focused a lot, especially in the early parts of the article, on Gagosian as an entertainer and the importance of getting the exact right mix of artists who will be entertaining and collectors who will purchase. And I don't think he said this in this in the exact in in this order, but also the importance of having models there because they look good. <laughs> you know, these kind of I I think that Gagosian represents a kind of misogyny that is perhaps even more prevalent in the like blue chip upper, like the the more wealthy class. Yeah, I mean at the very least, he is like the face of patriarchy. I mean that the 
one of the reasons why we're talking about this article is because it's in the New Yorker. You know, it's going to be sort of widely read. It's sort of in like relatively mainstream media. And it's a very long profile. I know it, it took me about an hour cumulatively to read this thing. Which yeah, me too. It is wide ranging. You know, it covers a lot of Gagosian's personal history, but it's not very deep. There's not a lot of kind of, you know, revelations. There doesn't feel like there's- It was actually almost, I don't know if it was like apologetic, but like it it felt like it it seemed like the author need to offer an explanation for that quite frequently because the author would often say like characteristic of, you know, Gagosian, he would, you know, say that's a good painting. Oh, and well, that was like his aesthetic evaluation of something. We could we could go back through that article and count up the number of times in which Gagosian has to say, no, that's bullshit. That never happened. And you're right. You know, the the author sort of apologizes like he's like, I'm going to tell you about a time in Gagosian's life where he may or may not have made um, inappropriate phone calls to women late at night, you know, uh, and, but none of, I haven't gotten a whiff of a rumor of that in the last 20 years. years, Yeah. Right. Um, But the article But but it does sort of seem like he did do it. Yeah. Yeah. There's not a big, you know, I mean, Gagosian, of course, will deny all of this. And I'm sure, you know, I think he says at one point in the article, like, I hope you have good lawyers, you know, if you're going to raise uh, a question or bring up, you know, sort of uh, Gagosian's history. But well, you know, and it, the article does feel kind of cautious in that way, like really almost like really cautious because it doesn't step on some of the stuff that I think is a little bit more controversial. Yeah, I mean, there's parts of Gagosian's own history that are controversial. And I mean, I mean, misogyny is, you know, it's it's worth discussing, but you know, it's so complicated because, like, just in the sense of the article, you know, talks about um, his current gir- girlfriend Anna Wyant, who is like 27 or something, um, emerging from the shower or the pool, you know, hair is wet, runs upstairs, and you know, the author's trying to kind of talk a little bit about the fact that Larry's 78. And he's dating someone who's, you know, so much younger than he is, who the gallery also yeah, she's represents. She's like, what, 20 something, right? Yeah. And nobody, you know, I, I'm not going to criticize Anna Wyant for her, like, choices in life. Larry is the one who has, like, an enormous amount of power and influence and can sort of certainly elevate her career. He's the He's the person in the position of, like, you know, uh, unbelievable power and influence that the article spends a lot of try- time trying to understand, like, how did this guy who started out as kind of like a hippie stoner with some sort of like ambition, maybe just simple, straight up greed, you know, that got him going in this industry? Um, yeah. How did that guy become someone who can intimidate, you know, another multimillionaire? you know, make somebody who walks into the room feeling pretty good about themselves, at least, you know, economically, um, suddenly feels like they don't even belong in the same space, you know, and it is a kind of incredible transformation. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I feel like the FT, the Financial Times article that you shared with me, which is much, much shorter, and was published in 2022, got to some of the emotional charge that's there a little bit better because in that article it it talks about how he felt like when people let go of art when they sell it it feels like a loss like it and nobody likes that feeling and 
the thing that was interesting to me was that he that showed that he had uh, an emotional understanding of the buyer, which meant that he could sell anything. If you mm-hmm. understand how somebody feels, because people buy off, they buy things because they make them feel a certain way. And so if you have that understanding, you can be really successful. Well, and and I mean, to, to be fair, it's commonly held that like a lot of people buy artwork with no intention of selling it. And when most things become available on the market, it's because death, divorce or death, yes. you know, like it goes yeah. into Ron Perlman, you know, like when he hit bad financial times, he had to patch up his relationship with Larry so he could move a lot of art. But gagosian has been amazing at just going into places going to people's homes, finding what they have, and then just calling them. And whether yes, or and not they the want to sell or not. Yeah. And, you know, he basically he'll make a hundred phone calls and find the one person like Mark Jacobs, the fashion designers, like renovating an apartment or something and pay hey, needed to sell some artwork to kind of help with that cost. And so on one hand, yeah, Larry might understand the emotional sort of impact, but he also, I don't think, cares at all because I mean, part of the the he cares more about the sale and the transaction. He'll do whatever is necessary to kind of get somebody to let go of artwork. Yeah, and, you know, I think the idea is, you know, we we uh, would prefer if people did not, or you know, I guess people love artwork and don't want to sell it. Oh, I you know, I was just sort of talking more about like the fact that you know, Gagosian one of his main strengths is prying art away from people, whether or not they want to sell it or not, you know? Yes. And that's where, you know, he may have an emotional intelligence to kind of read buyers, but he also, it's other reasons why people buy art or might want to hang on to it are not, they're not important to him when it comes to like getting access to work that he can make available to other people. Um, and that takes a certain kind of, predatory or sort of mercenary attitude that sometimes it feels a little hard to reconcile with somebody who, you know, like would care about people's connection to a work of art. Yeah, no, he just seems incredibly driven. And I think one of the points of this particular article that uh, wasn't really explored that much, but uh, I think it's like the total of it shows just how much of the Gagosian empire is really driven by Larry himself and that finding a successor is something that I I think may be a challenge for that gallery. And there's been a lot of articles over the last couple of years that have come out about like these various boards that he's formed to help with that. And, but then in this article, you hear him getting really upset when uh, an artist asks him whether he like where he's going to be, like what would happen when he dies. And he's like, how dare you talk about this? I'm still working. You know, he's 78 years old. Most people are long past retired at that point, which means also that he's. His work is who he is. Yeah. And that artist, um, Issy Wood. I, th- I found that to be actually the most revealing, vulnerable part of the entire profile, yeah, where it sort of details too. Gagosian's attempt at sort of courting um, to develop a representation of this artist, you know, buying their work 
um, showing it to collectors before having any, you know, real uh, talk about like representing the artist's work or representing the artist at the gallery, and then really engages in this kind of like constant contact, trying to bring this artist on board, overcome any reservations, you know, brings Issy to his home is sort of like, I guess, you know, she goes to use the restroom and he's texting her while she's in the restroom and ultimately decides that, you know, this is not the gallery that they want to work with and goes with another gallery and a gallery that I'd never even heard of. Not just like, I'm not going to, you know, go to Gagosian, but I'll go to Hauser and Worth. It's like, no, I'm going to yeah. go with like Postmasters. I, it, it was sort of wild, but I hadn't, you know, like of all the descriptions of Gagosian in the article, you know, it it felt kind of desperate in the way that like, this is what he does and he's going to get what he wants and he's going to do whatever he can to like make this happen. And, it, you know, it doesn't, it's like one of the rare instances where it doesn't go his way in the article, but, you know, it's like rarely does he And he's still desperate. upset about it, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you know, say that, you know, she's a good artist. He still believes that she's a good painter. But he also, there's a moment in the article where he says he's not into, you know, self-reflection or introspection. That's when you sort of like for him, uh, it, it could cause him to stop doing what he's doing. And for me, you're right. You know, he's yeah, like a shark. Well, he moves in one direction. He has a couple of goals. He has some qualities or experience, whether it's vision or just a kind of aesthetic sensibility because the the financial times article i shared with you is called the world according to larry gagosian um i like the way things look you know and that is something that sort of runs through um both of the sort of like profiles is that you know he's really just like it it's a usually a one sentence description you know good painting I like painting, you know, <laughs> or uh, <laughs> what does he say in one? He's like, someone sends him a painting and he's like, I like faucets. And that is. Oh it. yeah. I like faucets. <laughs> was a really funny one. <laughs> yeah. I like faucets, uh, which I think contributes just in sort of generally to this idea that you're reading all of this information and backstory and biography and history, but you don't really get a whole lot of sense of there's like, a deeper thought or a thread or a vision for for art because it all started with like artists who already had established markets who already had careers he's not generally picking people up and and following like an interesting thread like i think the director of henry gallery um talks about you know where dealers at the bottom have to kind of like follow their intuition and see if something that is raw or just emerging really develops into an artist that is going to command, you know, these kind of price points. And Gagosian never had to do any of that. You know, he, he, his mentors, whether it was Leo Castelli, Leo Castelli or Cy Newhouse, you know, all of these connections, he was like somebody who, to be fair, there's a lot of dealers in the art world who inherit Rolodexes and like connections. They don't have to work very hard to access other very wealthy people. Gagosian sort of like had to find the right people. And uh, I think they describe it as a kind of disinhibition. Like he just will ask anyone anything when it comes to art or sales. And it doesn't Well, and that was it. sort of, when I saw that, the dis it, disinhibition, like mm -hmm. that seemed to be kind of the thesis or 
for lack of a better word, but the personality profile that they mm-hmm. were trying, like that was trying to be shaped, that this was somebody who that was his most distinguishing quality. Right. Quality. And, and I, you know, I think we can uh, talk for a long time about the sort of like uh, Gagosian as an individual, but the central sort of thing in there that you were bringing up that I think we should come back to is like, what happens when Gagosian dies? Unlike, you know, Pace, you know, it's the Glimchers and that family or Zwerner who has children. The article is clear to point out that Gagosian maybe has a sister somewhere and there's not much of a connection. He has no heirs. Yeah, she wouldn't comment. And so if he dies, which he's very defensive about, right? It's sort of like asking an artist, like you don't really ask an artist what's next for you. You're dead. There's no more artwork, you know, but with Gagosian, it's like it is going to continue. And one of the things that I've always understood is that if you're talking, if you ask people like what makes a good dealer, they say the same thing about dealers as artists. It takes vision. It takes a certain sensibility. You have to kind of craft a program. I mean, the way that you, um, and it's it's wonderfully sort of described in Sarah Thornton's Seven Days in the Art World, the first chapter about the kind of art fair, or maybe it's the third chapter in the book. But when she's talking to collectors and dealers and artists, they invariably talk about a lot of the same qualities. And that is like a singular vision something unique that makes it non-reproducible. It is like this person's personality, all of their experience comes through in this program. And I think that is true with Gagosian, you know, and it is a very commercial space. It has done a kind of amazing balancing act of not just being so commercial that people are repulsed by it. There's always a little bit of that with Gagosian. I think part of that is because he's he really likes a grandeur and oh. kind of like it, it I don't know if power is the right word, but there's ambition. Oh, there. Ambition. Yeah. You know, so because he likes that in artists, like grandeur and ambition, I think that that ambition can kind of it doesn't always work. I don't want to say it always works, but it can maybe shield him from things that might otherwise look too commercial. So I I actually feel like Perotin often crosses that line of being way too commercial far more than Gagosian does. Yeah, I mean I I think it was it was interesting in the article when they're talking with Antoine Sargent who is brought in um primarily to bring programming of black artists into the gallery. Yeah. You know, but Antoine's like, look, I'm not, this isn't tokenism because they're not just asking me to bring programming in the gallery. He's like, I have to do this thing that we're really here to do, which is sell artwork. And I actually thought that was really like just refreshing. Um, in yeah. part because I was like, wow, Antoine's biggest show that I've seen and really loved was Social Works. And granted, there was some work that could sell in that show. There were also some really challenging pieces that I mean, I hope they found collectors for it, but we're talking huge architectural interventions, you know, I mean, um, it was a really ambitious show. So social uh, works showed where? That was at Gagosian. That was at Gagosian, Periton. Right? Yeah, no, Periton would never pull off a show like that. And Periton is so commercial. Again, he's this gallerist who has now sold a controlling stake of his gallery into, to, to you know, a corporate, a corporate. buyer, basically. Yeah. And that is, I think, you know, the sort of what's next for Gagosian and not just for Gagosian, but uh, a whole generation of art dealers like Marianne Goodman, Barbara Gladstone, who, whether or not they have heirs or handpicked successors, 
the person who established the gallery is not going to be there anymore. They're not going to be on this earth. And the question is, can the gallery continue under not just like one other person? I mean, uh, either, a, you know, a couple of directors, a board, like an advisory board that Gagosian is sort of set up. And it also asks, you know, can the art world, can galleries run on a corporate model? You know, can it be just another business or the arm of LVMH that sells luxury goods without the idea that there is some parallel to the artist who cares about something that is not just about sales or not just, I, you know, that they care about art, right? Well, right. And I think like we've seen a lot of tension when that comes into play, right? Uh, Meow Wolf, for example, <laughs> is like a DIY you know, artistic experiential art experience. There's There was an entire documentary that was produced by Meow Wolf itself. So it wasn't exactly disinterested, but it talked about this like tension between the anarchy of the artist collective and the need to actually make money. And I think they, I don't know how they're doing now. They had a couple of projects. They got a lot of investment. Mm. And some of their projects that were going to be built aren't being built anymore. So, and I also think that like Tim Schneider has written a lot about this idea that as these mega galleries, stables of artists get larger, that they become less reflective of a particular vision because they can't like after a while, like if you have a hundred artists on your, like in your stable, you're, I don't want to say that your vision gets diluted, but I guess that is kind of the case. Like it's a little bit, it's just a little bit less obvious, like what it is. It's more about managing brands. Um, and yeah, that yeah. I think is where we run into. And, and this is, I think to bring it back, or I'd like to bring it back to the, the core theme of this particular podcast, which is, you know, how has the art world changed? You know, one of these things that we've been talking about is, you know, the the stables sort of being more corporation-like in the higher tiers of the art world. I would be curious to hear, like, what your takeaways were for Gagosian. Like, how has he changed the art world? In terms of, like, representation of artists or how representation works. I mean, the way, one of the fundamental ways he's changed the art world, and we're all pretty aware of this now, is that, you know, he's got 19 galleries spread out around the world, is not just located in one city or even two major areas. He represents over a hundred artists in their estates. You know, that's not common. I mean, the fact that he has so many people, it's not like, all right, my, I think historically my idea of the gallery is even if a gallery gets kind of big, you're still coming back to a Barbara Gladstone, you know, you're coming back to one or two people that really sort of drive this operation and that they have relationships with the artists. Um, there's an investment over time and you can kind of find your way back to some people. Whereas, you know, with Gagosian, you know, I think you summed it up, like his vision is ambition. And if you have an ambition that aligns with his, it doesn't really matter what the artwork looks like or is about. 
he'll yeah. represent you. And I, I think there were certainly some artists quoted in the article who sort of like that focus was too much on sales and commerce for them. Like Cecily Brown left the gallery a number of years ago because she wanted her work to be in museums. And, uh, you know, the article Riley sort of notes that she has a show at the Met right now. But that model, that scale of like the art world didn't, of, of a gallery didn't exist before Gagosian. Like that transformation is his, you know, yeah. it, it, they, they clearly show the lineage in the history of Gagosian via Leo Castelli, who kind of created the model of, you know, I represent artists, I'll take 50%, even though he was somebody who loved art and subsidized the artist's work, gave them advances, things like that. But, you know, this, this idea of the mega gallery. It's not something we used to talk about, you know, in the early 2000s or when we saw it. I remember Jerry Saltz railing, you know, in the Village Voice against, you know, the gleaming white cubes in Chelsea and the rampant commercialization of it. Right. And I think one of the things that changed in the art world was that there was a kind of like cultural, a culture of like uh, anti-corporate sentiment, being against commodification, you know, all of these things where I think there was more of at least a an outward <laughs> position of criticality against those things where we have shifted. I think there are a lot know. of people who are just more interested in how this stuff works and how to make it work for them at this yeah. point, yeah, as opposed yeah. to, because I mean, with Gagosian, how do you fight that? You know, it like Star Wars analogies could abound. I mean, he ha literally has an empire, you know? Well, you know, and I remember one of the things that always stuck out to me was this piece that, uh, Holland Cotter wrote and he was talking about I, I believe it was a show at Gagosian where Gagosian had borrowed some works you know um and they were quote-unquote museum quality works for this big show and I don't I like I don't remember now these shows are like common enough that I don't remember which big which mega artist had uh he had borrowed work for but like there was only two or three works that were even for sale you had to be a very special person to even find out which of those works were the case and holland cotter described this as a gift to the public and i understand where that came from because like it costs to get into any museum now it doesn't cost to visit a gallery. The price is that once those works are acquired, they aren't available for, for view in public again. Right. Absolutely. Right? And, and that's, I think, the cost that we have neglected to talk about. Yeah. You know, and you mentioned uh, earlier, Gagosian's quoted in the uh, article saying he doesn't like to sell museum to museums, right? Yeah, because he, can't he sell knows it again. he can't sell it again. But the loss for us is that work now has just transferred into private hands. It could end up in a free port. Maybe it stays in storage or it's just in their private mansion in Majorca or wherever, you know, like. I mean, I even if it's in a private mansion yeah. in New York, like the chances, one of the best Suzanne works I've ever seen was inside a private residence when I was working in galleries. And I saw it once, I'll never see it again because it's privately owned. And that really, it actually kind of shook me because I was like that, like it made me wonder how many works of that caliber were just privately owned. 
that well, I, the article mentions that Freeport in Geneva that has like this the world's largest collection of privately held work that we will never see unless it comes out of this you know vault in a sort of tax haven. Um, so it's a it's a pretty common condition, um, but I, you know I, I do think you're you're really <laughs> right about that idea that like Holland saying you know and and Zwerner's echoed this. He said that like the New York galleries are the biggest freebie in the world, and it's true. We can still go look at shows. We don't have to pay thirty dollars now to get into the Whitney or twenty dollars to get in an, even not a foreland. Um we've seen kind of ticket prices rising and being yeah, added expanding. to everything. Like yeah. I I don't think I'll ever go to freeze again at for what they're charging to you know get into essentially a shopping mall of art, which um, is a horrible way sometimes to kind of experience artwork. I certainly don't want to pay a lot of money to browse. But, you know, this this idea that, like, because they're free for some of us, you know, uh, who go and see artwork, that it, it, it excuses all of the other sort of problematics of, like, not selling to museums or the fact that, you know, museums don't have acquisition budgets, even if they even if Gagosian would sort of sell to them, you know, they're really dependent on collectors and this very narrow band of society to kind of like make donations to museums and get that work into collections. And I think that also speaks to a problem that artists have, and it now seems like at almost every level, right? Because Cicely Brown actually left Gagosian mm -hmm. for this reason, but like, how do you take care of your legacy? Yeah. Right? And I think it has to be more than I'm going to sell to some people. <laughs> yeah yeah getting work into museums is one way it doesn't solve all the problems you know most museum collections still sit in storage it is it's more of a promise that the work is going to be sort of taken care of and hopefully that it will will be seen um, but it definitely gives your work more of an opportunity to kind of survive in a long timeline than um, hoping that it's going to happen or depending on on private collectors, you know, um, to kind of store your work uh, into the future. But again, you know, I mean, it, there is this sort of like, I think I, I'm curious why now are all these, you know, profiles of Gagosian coming up? Because for a long time, he wouldn't even talk to the press, probably in part because of his own personal history that is alluded to in the article and some of his own issues. But um, is it because he's approaching the end of his life and people are wondering what is going to happen to this kind of sprawling empire? And he's defensive about it. And I think it's also hard for artists to kind of talk about what am I going to do with all this stuff? Because yeah, what, yeah. it is a source of anxiety. Um, mortality is sitting right there, like death <laughs> but also you've got this huge thing that you know if it's not properly taken care of it could be a burden to someone um it could just end up in the dumpster i mean all of gagosian's artists and artworks you know whatever happens to his empire that work it's going to go somewhere right it's too valuable to just get put in the dumpster but his brand the the you know the galleries the physical architecture of those spaces they that could all just go away if there's not someone who can drive the profit engine, because I mean, other dealers that were interviewed in that article are sort of like, how is he doing this? I run a gallery. I don't know how he can make this much money. You know, it is, it is um, a little bit of a mystery, but like, 
he's he's made an enormous amount of money, but it doesn't all of that kind of like, I don't know, architecture and gallery space. It could just become like an H&M or something at some point. It's not, <laughs> his legacy is not insured, uh, um, you know. One of the things that dealers give artists is uh, a kind of separation from the buyers that sometimes I feel like we want, right? Like I was thinking about it sort of similarly to it's not quite the same thing, but like on network, we had a financial uh, advisor come in to Mara Bates, Bates and she was talking, we wanted, uh, one of the artists wanted to know how to invest their money in places that were ethically sound so that they weren't um, contributing to places like Blackwater and, you know, like terrible things. And her answer, and she's like very much an activist herself, was like, it's not possible. You you can't do it. But like there's a kind of when you put your money in a, a place like, say, Elvest, which just invests the money for you, like you have that level of separation from the people that you're you're, I mean, it, you're I, I hear you. It, it's a it's a form of separation, but it's also a kind of disassociation. And you know, I think it's one thing to acknowledge the reality of society, and you know, but it's another thing maybe to kind of just set up like a shield and be like, it is not my concern now. It's somebody else's responsibility. Oh um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think and, yeah, I think that's a I think that's a really good distinction. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting in the Gagosian profile, again, it's like Cecily Brown, who's sort of talking about the fact that, you know, she had to disassociate herself from her prices so that she could continue to make art without being sort of paralyzed by the fact that like, I'm about to slash a $350,000 painting because I don't like the way it's going. And she destroys, you know, some of her work in progress. And you know, I think that's an interesting problem that very few artists I know are going to have, you know, with yeah. price oh, points yeah. in that range, you know, but that still that that notion that, you know, like uh, the market and pricing and all of these things do have a kind of influence on us, you know, and there are the sort of prices and sales that we can make versus we're also operating again in the shadow of like this, you know, sort of like Gagosian world and these sort of monumental, you know, prices that are kind of hard to fathom sometimes. So, you know, it's interesting. We spend so much time talking about and looking at and thinking through these things when they affect like, you know, like 0.1% of artists have to kind of deal with those psychological pressures. But we we sort of sit with it, you know, it sort of like finds its way into our studio is almost like a what if question. Like, what if my work was worth millions of dollars what would how would it how would it <laughs> fuck me up and i don't know if there's some of that you know that just comes from being in proximity and and working in a field where that is sort of like if you do this right this is what you will have to deal with you know i think there are different stages of business and uh, like places in your career and in those different places you're going to have different challenges you know i think one of the things that we've talked a lot about is how the challenges in the blue chip world have evolved. And part of the reason for that, I think, is that there's a lot more written about what's happening in the blue chip world than what's happening in the, in the world where most artists work and yeah. operate. 
I think that's a problem for us in terms of, even in terms of like our conversation, you know, we talk to artists every single day trying to help them navigate the way, like their way through a lot of the changes that happened over the last five years. And even still, it's kind of difficult for us to to put that into words. And I think if I were to say, if I were to summarize some of the, the problems that have cha- that where like where we're operating, where those challenges lie, like I would identify some of them in terms of like just the sheer volume of work that the average artist has to do in order to get by. I think it it feels like it is a lot more because you have to like, you know. You have to be on social media. You have to promote your work. You have to you you have to be the representative for yourself until you get gallery representation. And even though we have these like parallel tracks, uh, I think even the gallerists that are on this separate track struggle a lot more. So there's a lot more hustle that has to go on. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, undoubtedly. I mean, the the fact that with the introduction of social media and there's so many tools that you can make yourself visible, um, it it really materializes a lot of the aspects of what being an artist is in terms of a more entrepreneurial perspective or just the fact that literally you are a small business producing your work. It's really fascinating because, I mean, there is some discussion in the Gagosian article about the difference between a dealer who represents the artists and the clients and trying to like, you know, they're asking these kind of ethical questions, like, who are you representing in this? Who do you, whose interest do you represent? Is it is it the clients? Is it collectors? Are you pitting them against one another? Is it artists? Are you treating them well and, and making sure their careers are advancing? And now imagine you're an artist and you're selling your own work, you know, and you you have to, you know, are you are you representing the interests of collectors? Are you representing your own interests well? And trying to do all this while making some artwork. And again, whether, you know, for Cecily Brown, the 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 high price point becomes a problem. You know, for for a lot of us, you know, if you're selling your own artwork without a dealer, you're also setting prices and you have to kind of deal with all of the kind of there is no way to disassociate yourself from that. You know, you're sort of, you have to deal with it. Um, you have to talk to people about prices. You have to be able to explain them and sort of justify them. Where, you know, with a gallery, you do get some of that work taken off your plate. But we are, you know, Tribeca is a, a real place with a lot of galleries that are at that sort of middle tier where they have, for most galleries, they depend on the sales of two to three artists with one artist who really drives those sales. Right. You know, and so you can look at a gallery and think, wow, everyone here must be doing great. And it's like, no, not really. (laughs) We're all there. There's a hope that, you know, they're going to develop a couple of really commercially viable people that then support the rest of the activity. Um, And so the gallery's priority. What typically happens though, is that they move on to a blue chip gallery, right? So all the work you do. Except, you know, the whole thing would collapse if all of those artists got hoovered up into um, the big galleries. There's still, there's a lot of artists who probably do quite well at a certain level who are unhappy and would like to move up, but they're not going to yet. And if they all did, there would be no middle tier of the art world. There would yeah. just be a, an absolute 
beginning <laughs> with people who are like here and then, you know, uh, sort of top level. One of the things that we're going to do on the Art Problems podcast for everybody uh, listening is that we are going to be talking to a couple of dealers uh, as as the show progresses about what they are doing at the middle tier and how that might impact you. So look forward to that. And William, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Great to talk with you, Patty. Likewise. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review and share it with a friend. It really helps get that valuable information out to more artists just like you. You can find all of the names and the links that we reference in this conversation at workshop.art slash podcast.